0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: Mary Kay Henry is the president of Service Employees International Union. It's, it's one of America's biggest private sector unions, uh, and traditionally one of the most politically influential. And she's got some some like big ideas for labor law reform that have been influential a little bit in the political campaign. Uh, but I think are just like really fascinating to dig into. I was really glad to sit down with her and do this interview. Uh, I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Matthew Glacius, and I'm here today with Mary Kay Henry. She's the president of the Service Employees International Union, uh, one of the biggest labor unions in America. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, her union, some of their, their policy proposals. Um, Welcome to the show. Glad to be with you, Matt. Uh, so I think, like, first off, what is SEIU? A, uh, a lot of unions, you know, it's like steelworkers. They represent steelworkers. Um, we're the what...
3: service employees, International Union. And we were born by immigrant flat janitors. We have 300,000 Janitors, security officers, and airport workers, and we have a million healthcare workers in nursing homes, home care, and uh, hospitals, and we have a uh, eight hundred thousand public employees uh, that do work in schools, cities, state government, and federal government.
2: And this is the, the the second largest union by membership. That's right in America, and I think you know people people don't always know this, right? But the the sort of you know modern face of unions in America is in the service economy roles. That's where the majority of people work of all kinds. Um, And it's not necessarily what sort of comes to people's minds. When they think about
3: unions. Yeah, like home care is the fastest growing job in the U.S. economy. And uh, it was excluded from the original labor law because that was done by primarily women of color. And in order to get Southern Democrats to vote for the National Labor Relations Act, many workers doing service work were excluded because they were women and people of color.
2: Right. And well, this this gets us into the the, the point, I think, which is, you know, unions are um, private organizations, but exist under a labor law paradigm, which in the United States is different from what you see in most European countries. And I think there's been a lot of attention in previous congressional cycles to the ways in which labor law might make it more difficult to organize unions here than in other places. But SEIU has come out strongly recently in favor of changing sort of how the basic bargaining paradigm works.
3: Yes. For 60 years, our union has been organizing around the existing law because the current law is so broken and so defective. And as I said, so many workers were excluded. We really uh, have asserted that the right to organize doesn't exist anymore. And We've seen uprisings of teachers, the Fight for 15 and a union movement, the high school students. I think there's a general sense that we have to join together in order to build a better life uh, for ourselves. And that's why we thought we needed as a union to make four concrete demands of every presidential candidate for how they're going to make it possible for every worker to join a union no matter what job they do in the U.S. economy.
2: So four demands. You want to give them to me?
3: Yeah. Under the umbrella of unions for all, uh, we want sectoral bargaining either by geography, by industry nationally, or by occupation. We want the ability for states and uh, cities to be able to innovate above a federal uh, minimum standard for unions as opposed to a federal uh, ceiling ceiling that's currently holding workers down. Uh, we want every tax dollar to be tied to the creation of good union jobs, and we want every policy proposal to fix the U.S. economy to have at its heart the ability of workers to join unions. So healthcare for all, the 9 million non-union healthcare workers ought to have the right to join a union. College for all, the every... Uh, education worker and faculty member in universities in this country ought to have the right to join a union.
2: Okay. So I I want to talk about sexual bargaining. This is the kind of thing, uh, sort of nerdy stuff, people who did like comparative politics classes in in college (laughs) maybe used to hear about uh, and haven't been accustomed to in practical American politics. Right. But so the way things work right now to be a little... Broad about it. Uh, you know, we we organized a union here at, at Vox, uh, organized with Writers Guild East, and then the first thing that happens after that is you bargain for a contract. Right. And that is a, it's it's a collective undertaking instead of each individual person talking to their boss, right? You, you come together as a group. You know, we bargain concessions around wages, around leave, stuff like that. But it's with specifically our bosses here at Vox. Right. And one consideration that happens is, like, we all work here. Like, we we don't want the company to go out of business because that doesn't help anyone here. And they do, like, they need to compete with the other companies, right? So when you're there at the table, a consideration always is, like, well, does this drag the whole enterprise down? And that's sort of inherent to the bargaining movement. You are limited to an extent by what is out there in the marketplace. And the sectoral approach uh, tries to change that. That's
3: right. So imagine if Vox Media workers were at a national table with all digital media workers thinking about how to raise wages and benefits for everybody and that competition was based on the content, not on the low road of how uh, much can I extract from the labor of workers who want to get into this sector. And the way it worked in the 30s is the Flint sit-down strikers decided to stop working in the factory until uh, GM bargained. And the governor of that state was called on by GM to call out the National Guard to end the strike, and the governor refused. And so in that case... Government stood with workers and kind of forced the creation of what was the beginning of a sectoral bargaining agreement in the um, auto sector of the country. But then when the National Labor Relations Act was passed, it forced enterprise-based bargaining with each individual company. Um, And what we want to imagine in this day and age is uh, the next president of the United States getting McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King in the Oval Office and saying it's an outrage that your CEO earns $10,000 an hour when the average fast food workers earned 10, that uh, record profits, uh, they've done share dividends on top of uh, buybacks that they've done. And so let's uh, establish a national bargaining standard for 4 million fast food workers in the US, just like these three companies have done all around the world. So, th- we want that uh, concept of sectoral bargaining to either be created through the next version of auto, we will strike and create disruption and uh, sort of bring these companies to their senses. Mm-hmm. Or we will create the politics of the possible at the national level and sign a law into into being.
2: Wait, right. so so what you what you referenced in the auto industry, right? This is what I, I think in history books will be referred to as the Treaty of Detroit. Correct. Right. There was a lot going on in America in the '30s and '40s. <laughs> there was there were, there was a depression. There were strikes. There was a war. The, the labor law paradigm was not really settled, and so an effort was made by. The state government, like they they wanted to get the factories reopened, but they didn't want to do what the, the companies had wanted them to like bring the National Guard in right, and like drag, it, the drag everybody out. Right. And so they said so they didn't want to do that. They wanted to settle the strike and they wanted to settle it essentially across the industry, right? Which was at that point geographically concentrated in one place. And that set the pattern, right? Even though the National Labor Relations Act did not codify that approach. For a long time, we had an automobile industry that was centered in Michigan. That's right. Um, It it was driven by that understanding. But because of the way the rules are actually written, more and more companies came in. They went into right-to-work states. They organized non-union factories. And we don't have a, a formal framework that then extends those concessions throughout the industry.
3: Right. I We've done work with the German unions that uh, represent Volkswagen. And mm-hmm. the Volkswagen workers in Germany have the highest standards in auto mm-hmm. in Europe. And they were shocked that uh, the... Volkswagen workers in Nashville, Tennessee, tried three times to form a union under our current rigged rules. And the governor, the two state senators, the city council, all made it crystal clear to those workers that if they voted yes for the union, they were going to close the plant and move it. And so up against that kind of threat from uh, public uh, elected officials, um, it's really hard to overcome, even when Volkswagen was not... Uh, campaigning against the union right? because of their German trade unionists saying to them, that's not our vision and values. And so the Germans were shocked that in America that elected officials of the people would basically uh, – rigged the rules in a way that made workers feel like their economic security was at risk if they voted for the union. Right,
2: right, exactly. And so this kind of more more sectoral approach, I mean, I I don't know if you you can talk about how how this works in in other countries, but... The more typical arrangement is to say instead of a contract at a particular company, or in America, often a particular job location. Correct. Right, is that you will have a contract for, or at least a set of standards for an industry.
3: Right. And the thing that we're up against is trying to create the conditions for both city-wide agreements. Mm -hmm. Like imagine if in L.A. and New York – Building on the victory for 15, fast food workers could organize a union and create the conditions for all the fast food companies to be at a citywide multi-employer table Mm -hmm. where they can rationalize schedules. They can deal with the burns on their arms, which is endemic in this industry. Um, They could uh, figure out how to get education and training um, located in the city so they could build a better life for themselves. Again, all these standards exist in Australia and Denmark and other places where these companies operate, and the burgers wouldn't have to cost more, which mm-hmm. is their big uh, threat. And so that's why we want to both do sectoral bargaining and allow states and cities to innovate hmm. as we change the politics of the nation and can make a national standard. Right.
2: And and so in sort of economics-y way of thinking about it, right, part of the issue is that if you're trying to organize site by site by site, right, the real strength, the, the big gains of unionization come in when you have high density throughout an area, right? right? The the custodial staff at one building in a city does not have really much clout vis-a-vis Correct. anybody. But if you have all the big buildings, yes. then you have a lot, yes. right? But so it creates a paradox, right? If you're coming into a place, you know, a southern city that has a hostile political climate. It's hard work to organize, and the gains are going to be actually really small. Right. Right. That's right. So you get just kind of locked in, right? Whereas if you can sort of talk on a big scale from the beginning, right? Um, there's a lot more potential.
3: Yeah, I had this fascinating experience with one of the presidential candidates who we've been having dinners with our members mm-hmm. and local leaders and candidates to talk about um, these four demands. And the fast food worker said, I got 15, but I really want a union. And the candidate said back, no problem, I'm going to make it possible for you to sign uh of your coworkers up on cards, and then you win your union at your store. Mm -hmm. And the fast food worker says back, that's not going to help me because the economic decisions about uh, what we earn are made in Chicago for McDonald's, they're made in London for Burger King, and they're made in Brazil for Wendy's. We need the multinationals at a national table because they set the terms and conditions for napkins and pickles and where we buy the burgers, they also set the terms and conditions for our wages, hours, and working conditions. Mm -hmm. But all these companies under current law are basically saying, no, it's the franchise owner, not us, that determine wages.
2: Right. So the, the, the technical issue here, I'm not sure actually how many people realize this, but if you go into a McDonald's, right, the odds are quite high. Like McDonald's Inc. does own some restaurants, but mostly they don't. Right. They own intellectual property and they give you a license to operate a McDonald's. And then they give you like a – there's a big book, right? And it's like the, here's how you do a McDonald's. right? Um, and and the person who actually owns the store pays them a fee for it. Right. And the current, you know, uh, legal status is that, well, you don't work for McDonald's at all if you work in that store. You work for the guy who owns the franchise.
3: Right. And the other thing McDonald's does is own the real estate Mm -hmm. and leases the property to the the owner. So the threat on the franchise owner is if they don't play by McDonald's corporate rules, McDonald's will shut their store down because they can pull the real estate. Mm -hmm. And so the franchise owners in this system are in the same predicament that workers are, where... Uh, they, in fact, aren't the owner. Right. <laughs> they sign an MOU with the real owner. And so that's what makes – we've had experiences in California where franchise owners wanted to organize alongside of the fat, Fight for 15 leaders mm-hmm. because they want to reset the terms of the franchise system as well.
2: Right. right. And so – I mean, there's like a sort of narrow regulatory point here, right? With the Obama era, NLRB, they were going to publish a rule that said you were going to be considered a joint employee. Correct. Um, And then the Trump administration flipped that back.
3: And we've been in litigation over it for the entire three years of the current administration. That's
2: fine. Yeah. Um, And so from a a labor organizing point of view, this is basically like you want to have the biggest target. You want to work with the big multinational companies who ultimately have a lot of money, have a lot of stores, uh, and can really shape the fundamental rules.
3: Yeah, it's – think about it as where are the economic shots being called Mm -hmm. that affect people's everyday work? Mm -hmm. So the Amazon workers in Minnesota who struck for religious prayer time Mm -hmm. in a warehouse – Got relief for their religious practice from the warehouse owner, but that was cleared by Amazon in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine those workers trying to bargain a contract in that one warehouse, given that Amazon's the largest employer in the world. Mm-hmm. They don't really have a shot at having the economic power necessary to fundamentally alter the terms and conditions of the 80% of those jobs that are temporary jobs mm-hmm. that are not Amazon direct employees. Right.
2: I mean, especially because like a warehouse could just go someplace else, right? right? I mean, That's it's right. it's like if if Amazon wants to work in America, it needs to have a lot of warehouses, broadly speaking, like in the country, right? But they could be a lot of different places. So when you try to bargain around one specific location, the threat of well, we're gonna we're gonna not contract with this place anymore. Or we're just gonna shut this site down and, and go someplace else is very potent, right? Right. And so the the goal is to get to a, a big unit, right? Correct. Burger King is not going to walk away from the United States of America. Right. right? That's right. It's like we're eating too many burgers here. Right. Um, what would this look like in a, a specific term, right? Like how could bargaining work on, a, on an industry-wide level?
3: Well, in our imagination, it's like it works in other parts of the world, but we would create our version of it mm-hmm. in, in America. So... If Wendy's, McDonald's, and Burger King collectively employ 1.5 million of the 4 million fast food workers in the country, and those three biggest companies were ready to frame a collective bargaining agreement with their direct employees, then we think it would take wages out of competition across this sector, and we could get the the smaller uh, franchises that are like regional uh, in various parts of the country to be a part of a collective agreement where it's a national table, everybody gets their wages, hours, and working conditions bargained at the national level, Mm -hmm. and then people can innovate beyond that in cities and states where we have more strength.
2: Right. The idea would be to have a sort of a a big negotiation, right? Like the heads of- A bunch of companies who are considered competitors to find somehow and then representatives of all the different people who work at them making a a, a sort of a floor throughout the industry. Correct. Do you think that's in any way like realistic?
3: Yes, I do. I think it's possible because I think the strength of the movement for 15 in a Union has demonstrated that we... Everybody thought 15 was ridiculous six years ago Mm -hmm. when 200 New York fast food workers walked off the job, and now 24 million people are on a path to 15 and $70 billion has been put in the pockets of working people who in some cases were earning $7.25 uh, an hour and now earning 15, and that's transformative for people, and my experience in New York after uh, Cuomo created the wage board, uh, where industry, uh, public officials, and fast food workers together figured out the path to 15, uh, is that people thought, geez, I I just won 15. What else can I win in my life? And Mm -hmm. the New York workers put their elbows on the table and said, let's end stop and frisk. Let's end deportation in our community. The power of being able to do something together Uh, raises people's expectations and is why we think, why can't we form a union? And today, Matt, it would be around the existing federal law. So it would Mm -hmm. have to be a voluntary agreement. Where the top companies release their state uh, representatives to bargain uh, wages, hours, and working conditions with fast food workers in the state of New York. And that would be a voluntary agreement. Mm -hmm. And then let's imagine that we create that in LA and we could do it in Chicago. If we're in their three biggest profit centers Mm -hmm. in the US, then why can't the next president of the United States convene the companies and say, we we need to make this happen for all working people. I'm designating my de- uh, labor secretary, the heads of these companies, and representatives of the workers into a tripartite negotiation, and we're going to raise standards for 4 million workers in the service sector. It would transform service work in the way that auto did for industry work, and that's our imagination.
2: Okay, let's let's take a break here, and then I, I want to talk back about, about the state issues here. Okay. So you you mentioned just before uh, Andrew Cuomo and the wage board there. Yeah. I, I think this is not a term people are super familiar with. What does that mean? Like how, how did that happen? Because this was we had like fight for 15 protesters and right. there was like, you know, normal stuff like bills in the state legislature and people were arguing. But then, but then this board happened.
3: Yeah. This board was uh, a sort of Antique law that Mm -hmm. hadn't been used for 40 years, and it was originally created to close the gap post-depression between uh, companies that were doing very well for themselves and the workers. And the law was written to say that the government um, industry could be convened by the governor— Uh, to close the gap between what the owners were making and what the workers were making. It was very simple. Um, And so we had been escalating the strike activity of fast food workers around the country. And on, I think it was April 15th, there was a global escalation where fast food workers joined around the world. And it hit a new kind of noise level, mm-hmm. and it prompted the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, to say, hey, I should do something about this. Mm-hmm. And there were then here at the mayor of Buffalo, an SEIU leader and uh, industry representative did six hearings around the state. Hundreds of fast food workers talked about not being able to make ends meet on 70 hours a week. And uh, they struggled mm-hmm. uh, with the political reality of could we really establish a $15 minimum? And lo and behold, um, even the Buffalo mayor who was originally kind of stuck at $12 mm-hmm. moved to 15 after he was moved by the testimony of the workers.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, so this is a – I mean it's interesting because this is like one of these things where you, you go through the, the books and you, you find like weird old stuff. That's in written there. Right. Uh, But this kind of process, I I think in a lot of um, European countries, it's common to have, they call it like tripartite wage setting. Yes. Um, And so the idea here is uh, people normally would like to get paid more money. Um, People who own companies would like to pay less money. And then public officials would like, I don't know, they they want their constituents to be happy. uh, And they also don't want to wreck. The economy, and so they will do meetings, uh, and you you bring in you know employers, you bring in workers, and you try to say, um, well, you know, how much of a raise can we give, and you know keep inflation all the other things in check. I, I think this has gone a little bit into abeyance, um, even in in Europe, as a result of globalization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, but, but at least it, it had been a very prominent feature of, of European economies. And in effect, it turns out New York, the governor has the authority to do this kind of thing. Right. Um, and also to, to distinguish between... Industries, right? I mean, initially, the the proposal, at least the board, was specifically focused on the fast food sector,
3: right? And what it catalyzed was raising the fifteen, the minimum wage for the entire state, right? Like once those two hundred thousand fast food workers won a path to fifteen, it raised expectations of home care workers, child care workers, janitors, security officers. He he raised um, 15 of all state workers mm-hmm. um, that hadn't been earning 15. And so, yes, it catalyzed uh, raising the wage. The thing we have to figure out in this moment, Matt, is how do we build a union mm-hmm. around the wage board victory? right? Uh, which wasn't a feature of the original sure. law. And that's where the innovation has to come in and is currently prohibited by federal law. But if we create the political demand and are able to get uh, elected officials at the city and state level to innovate with us, to do workarounds, we think we will create the conditions for a national change.
2: So what, what is the, the federal law? Like, Like, what's the what's the issue that federal law prohibits from?
3: Well, the National Labor Relations Act mm-hmm. forces the, the Vox experience that you talked about at mm-hmm. the beginning of this podcast, which is um, workers are forced to organize employer by employer. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, with national employers, Uh, by location, right? right? The only uh, place that it's different is in the airline sector. They're governed by a different act, the Railway Labor Act. So when Delta flight attendants want to form their union, they have to form a national union at every hub. The Atlanta Delta uh, attendants don't form their own union by their city. But in other parts, like when we try and organize the Hospital Corporation of America, we organize one hospital in one city under the current rules when that employer operates like 188 hospitals Mm -hmm. nationwide.
2: And the the, the airline example is a great one to bring up because, you know, I think people don't always appreciate how much the shape of labor relations is just driven by the legal system Correct. that the airline industry is very heavily unionized compared to most other sectors of the economy right and that's not some like magic dust that's in the planes um it's the fact that um i don't know why airlines got considered as railroads at exactly. some point in time, uh, but it's a it's a it's a different regulatory framework, and it means that you can um it, it's hard to organize unions in in any industry. But if you do organize, you have a powerful national union with real leverage that can win like big stuff for people. Right. Whereas organizing like one store in a national chain is it, is not going to accomplish very much. That's right? right. So one thing you could get from the federal government is just flexibility. Right. So some states are more liberal than others. Some states have stronger base of, of unions than others. And then you could win legal victories, I don't know, in New York, in Illinois, in California. Right. But that would require a change to the National Labor Relations Act?
3: Yes. In order for it to spread quickly, we need a national change. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to paint is a picture mm-hmm. where – As we make the demand for a national change, we are organizing in the places where elected officials do want to stand with working people and check corporate power in Mm -hmm. the economy and create uh, innovations in the way I described. Do a wage board and figure out a way for those workers to become union members based on a private agreement Mm -hmm. between the companies and the workers.
2: Hmm. Okay,
3: uh, And that then would create the pressure for national change, which is how the National Labor Relations Act was a response to workers being in the streets and demanding more for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. And it had the impact of making it more difficult to organize rather than easier. Mm-hmm. Like more workers formed unions before the act was passed than after it was passed because the act was a sort of – Way for corporations to limit workers disrupting their businesses.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there was a sort of a, a, a seesaw too legally. Right. So there was a Wagner Act in the in the 30s, and then an RA in the was it late 40s? Yes. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it it took what had been a sort of informal, um, fairly radical process, and it channeled it into what what currently is is a very legalistic. Correct. sort of framework, where there's a lot of like, you can do this, you can't do that, you're obligated here, the employer's obligated there. And it's, I think it works okay for the sectors that had high density as a legacy, right? Uh, but it's but it's very, like the economy, that was about 60 years ago, right? right? So like a lot of people work in industries that weren't a big deal right. in the past. Yeah. How much has the political paradigm Shifted Because, I I mean, I remember uh, 2007, 2008, all the effort that went into getting uh, Democrats in Congress to sign on to Employee Free Choice Act, and then that didn't happen.
3: Right. I think the political winds are shifting based on the fearlessness and courage of working people that are in the streets demanding more, both union members like the stop and shop workers in New England Mm -hmm. um, who had a valiant strike where all their consumers – Uh, stood with them uh, Mm -hmm. on the picket lines and then the fight for 15 and a union leadership that have been demanding 15 and are now escalating the demand Mm -hmm. for a union and the teachers uh, Mm -hmm. that have flooded the streets in West Virginia and Arizona and Arkansas and state after state where they've linked the deep concern that people have about the full funding of uh, education and equal education for everyone in this nation to how much our teachers and other school workers paid to uh, do those jobs. And those jobs are poverty jobs in some states where Mm -hmm. teachers and school workers are doing second jobs in order to make ends meet. Right. But I mean,
2: I I don't know if people even remember what Employee Free Choice Act. Was. Uh, but this was right now, um, there's like there's two ways a union can be organized. One is uh you get a majority of people to to sign a card that says I would like to be in a union. The other is you do a sort of a contested election in which the employer uh, campaigns against you. The success rate in the in the card check process is much much higher. Uh, so there was a push to change the federal law to make card check mandatory all the time. Right. Um, we we had a card check union here. Um, Typically, and you had an
3: employer that voluntarily recognized you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, Which is nothing
2: pretty, pretty unique. Yes. I mean, nothing is you know fully voluntary in life. Uh, but I would <laughs> that's say that's right. It, it ends up restricting you in practice. To. Industry is where the employer is highly sensitive to public sentiment yeah. about these things, yeah. right? Because if you're if you're in that kind of industry, um, media certainly is like very very public. Um, some of these universities, right? You can bring pressure to bear on the employer to you, you pressure them to voluntarily recognize the union. In mm-hmm. effect, right? Whereas like Walmart is very fanatical. Right, right, and they're 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 not going to voluntarily do anything. Um, they know people have been yelling at them for decades, and they've made their peace with that. Uh, but so Democrats like all agreed they were going to do this. They all said they were going to do it. They sort of did better in the two thousand eight election than people had thought they were going to do. Had the votes, and then they just didn't do it well we i would
3: say from our perspective we got pulled into 2 years of fighting to make healthcare accessible and more affordable mm-hmm. for 20 million more americans which is was a huge step forward mm-hmm. um it needs to be strengthened and we're part of the debate for healthcare for all but i'd have to say matt um for us efca is now not a demand that is worth reorganizing around, Mm -hmm. and it's why our union has said that we have to go beyond the mechanism For how workers organize and make the case that the right to organize doesn't exist any longer because the laws you're referring to require workers to walk over hot coals Mm -hmm. in most cases and thread a needle to get a union at their workplace. Mm -hmm. And that the system is broken Mm -hmm. and it has to be rewritten. Mm -hmm. And that's why corporate profits are at an all time high. It's why 25 uh, Americans earn more than. 125 million Americans, the gross racial and economic inequality we assert is because these rules have been broken for working people and working people no longer have the power Mm -hmm. in the economy. Uh, to raise wages for everybody. So when 33 million people were bargaining in the 50s and 60s, wages were going up for everybody. And since the 70s, wages have become stagnant because there's been a systematic attack on the ability of workers being able to join together in unions. Uh, Scott Walker, Act 10 perfect example of the destruction of the ability of workers to join together and bargain a better life in Wisconsin.
2: Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, I, I guess what, I, what I'm <laughs> driving at is like, one question is like, what are sort of technicalities or, or aspirational goals that people will sign on to? Another is like, in politics, like like, what do they want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, really and truly. And- the strong sense I got at watching Democrats govern in 2009-2010 is that, you know, it, it just – it turned out that they did not in fact want to significantly increase mm. union membership mm-hmm. in the United States. Yes. They weren't against it necessarily. Yes. But, you know, when – Their vote count started slipping and some other things were maybe not working out. It wasn't like, you know, well, we're going to go over the wall. We're going to batter a hole through the door. We're going to do everything we can, right? It was kind of – sorry, guys.
3: Yeah. I see – yeah, I I now understand the point you're making. I agree that neither Republicans nor Democrats in the current democracy have it in their self-interest to promote the ability of workers to join together in unions because it checks corporate power in Mm -hmm. the economy. And because corporate power matters so much for financing the current elections, it does put all candidates from... Uh, all parties in a predicament um to be forceful in standing with uh, working people,
2: yeah, and I, I always found, I mean, I think about a, a, a one of my my earliest editors, Paul Starr, and he he always made this point that, you know, when he would speak to donors to progressive causes, um, you know, wealthy people by definition, usually people involved in business, that they would be very happy to agree to lots of things uh, on the goal to, you know, not just like social causes or cultural issues, but real economic changes, paying higher taxes, having less money. I mean, that's not every wealthy person, but, right. but the wealthy people who who he knew, yeah. fine, like, yes, I totally agree, like, save the environment, healthcare for everybody, great schools. But when it came to the idea of Unions, they would be very, very, very hesitant because it's about changing power. Correct. And people, even well-intentioned people, like to have power to do their well-intentioned things with.
3: Right. That's right. And that's why we think one of the core demands on unions for all is every proposal to fix the American economy should have at its heart the ability of workers to join unions. So if we're going to fight for healthcare for all, let's create a way for every healthcare worker to join a union. Mm -hmm. If we're going to um, have universal child care, let's take the poverty wage work that's never been valued, is currently excluded from loss in this country, and allow child care providers to join together in unions. If we're going to um, have college for all, mm-hmm. um, we need to take the 80% of the workforce that has been part-timed and contracted, mm-hmm. which are adjunct faculty, lecturers, they, they're all a bunch of fancy names, but mm-hmm. basically they are a contingent workforce that are uh, teaching the next generation and are living in poverty. Mm -hmm. And let's create a way for every person that works on a college campus, a janitor, a secretary, a
2: faculty person, uh, to form a union. Okay. That is a perfect segue. Let's take a second break because then I I, want to talk about some of those ideas. Okay. So where you were going just there was sort of not like what is the labor reform agenda but what is – the issues that that all democrats are talking about right they're talking about healthcare they're talking about higher education they're talking about childcare um i don't want to say literally all of them but th- clearly this kind of thing is going to be in the mix and so you're saying we need to put a labor component in all of those things yeah. and what would that like what would that mean in in legal terms you know so i'm i'm doing a bill it's going to appropriate whatever money and that's going to go to help reduce or eliminate tuition at public colleges and universities. And so what do you say that We're bill needs to that add? We're saying that
3: those federal dollars that flow to that university mm-hmm. are tied to a, an agreement by the university that their employees or the people that work on their campus cuz most folks are no longer direct employees cuz mm-hmm. of subcontracting and independent contractor status. So we'd have to deal with that too, mm-hmm. but we'd say as a condition of receiving federal money uh, workers need to be able to join together and have a
2: union. But I mean, like, what what does that mean exactly? You know, because I mean, I think people would say, "No, well, pe- people can have a union, right?" I mean, like, what what is the specific legal policy change that needs to be made to sort of make that a reality?
3: It would mean writing into the higher education act I don't know the formal name mm-hmm. for it but any piece of federal legislation would add a, a section for how those workers could join together and get recognition create the ability for all the Boston universities to sit together at a citywide table and bargain for everybody you know so we could knit in geographic bargaining mm-hmm. Uh, As well, and some of our adjunct faculty members, we've organized 40,000 in the last five years. There's a million uh, working in Mm -hmm. uh, colleges across the country have imagined a national agreement Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. with higher education for faculty.
2: So there's, I mean, there's basically in higher education, there's sort of two somewhat related issues or maybe three, right? There's, There's adjunct faculty, there's graduate student instructors, and then there's the sort of campus support staff. Right, the, the dining hall, the, the cafeteria workers. Is that like a comprehensive issue or or, or are those sort of separate chunks in your well, mind? Well,
3: in the places where we currently collectively mm-hmm. bargain for the janitors, we have a separate contract for the adjunct faculty and then the full-time faculty, which is shrinking. But right. they have historically had contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, we've imagined uh, – some some floor for everybody, and that individual pieces of the campus would bargain up based on their particular interests, because mm-hmm. faculty have different interests than the food service and janitorial staff, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. So um, you could create a bargaining floor for anybody that works in higher education in the us, and then you could create um, contracts based on occupation or community of interest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that would speak to professional development. Or education and training, um, based on what the workers determine are their priorities.
2: So, I want to talk about the, the contracting thing because I, I, I spoke a, a few months ago to the chancellor of a, a large public university. I, I won't, I won't call out her name because I'm telling tales. But she, she was saying to me, you know, I got a proposal from one of these uh, dining services companies to come in and take over operations, and they said they could save us whatever amount of money. And I was interested. So I looked into it and it turned out to be totally true. They really could save us a bunch of money. And the reason was, was that we were going to get rid of union workers and they were going to hire back in probably the same people and just pay them less. Um, And so I said no, because I I didn't want to do it. But, you know, like in some sense, like if my board or the state government got their hands on this, they might tell me You know, I I have to do it, right? Right. And the issue there is, right, you just, you have different entities. So you can technically become not an employee of whatever university you work for Sodexo. Right. And I I mean, I think in spirit, you would want to say, well, what matters is like, where the work is happening,
3: yeah, we we actually did a campaign with another union on Sodexo, Aramark and Compass, who are the three largest they're multinational companies. Mm-hmm. They're not none of them are based in the u s. Mm-hmm. And we started trying to organize in universities and government. Government mm-hmm. has contracted out a lot of this as well to see if we could create a national standard for mm-hmm. food service workers. and, what we've been able to do is organize, again, because of the broken law, eight, thousand of the I think probably two to three million workers mm-hmm. um, who are bargaining um, a little bit better than minimum wage but not much because they don't have the bargaining power to impact those companies right uh, bottom line decision making
2: I think that I always think is striking is that in the us, because of this labor relations paradigm, so much of arguments about how to organize things wind up actually being about sort of finding you need loopholes, right? Right. Like, I I think, like, it's a reasonable question. Like, should a university be directly employing and supervising cafeteria workers? Or should you contract that out to a specialist organization, Mm -hmm. right? And like, Mm -hmm. you could make the argument both ways. But what that really means in America often is just like, well, are we slipping out of it? A union agreement, right. right? You're not you're not actually looking, sort of on the merits, at like how should the buses be provisioned. You're saying, can we get out of the collective bargaining,
3: agreement? right? Because the ethos is, um, how do I pay the least amount? And uh, we've in the service sector been driven into low road employment because the biggest companies in the world are making staggering profits off of paying people poverty wages.
2: And, you know, I mean, it was particularly striking in the in the service sector is that, you know, people talk all the time about globalization and, and whatever else, uh, but obviously that's not the issue here, right? I mean, people aren't going to go, you're not going to go eat in Vietnam, right? Right, like, that's right. Somebody's got to cook the meals here. <laughs> um, you know, and it's a question of will they be paid to do it? So how about healthcare? Like what would a sort of Labor agenda for the healthcare sector look like? Because that's a tremendous workforce.
3: Yeah. I don't know if people understand that when you add Medicare and Medicaid dollars together, mm-hmm. 60% of the healthcare industry is our tax dollars. Mm-hmm. And half of this industry is employing poverty wage workers in all of the service jobs in hospitals Mm -hmm. and in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And so I spent my first four years in the union organizing nursing home workers, Mm -hmm. you know, minimum wage workers, usually forced to work overtime, but not paid to do overtime and often caring for 30 residents and bringing washcloths in to bathe them because they weren't given the supplies they needed. It's just terrible conditions for work that nursing home workers actually love to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had to organize one nursing home at a time. Mm -hmm. Imagine if the federal government required for, with every Medicaid dollar that goes to this industry for workers to be able to join together either by state or nationally uh, to bargain a floor for every nursing home worker in this country, uh, the laundry, the dietary, the certified nursing assistants. Um, it would be a sea change in many communities in this country for the 2 million people doing nursing home work.
2: Medicaid's a great, a great way of looking at this because, you know, one thing is like, Okay, what's the outer limits of legal legislative change? Another question is, well, what could be pushed through by sort of determined people in in office, right? Are are there things, I mean, could a president who wanted to, working with a governor who wanted to sort of make these changes to their Medicaid long-term care financing, um, We's fans who recall our uh, Jessica Schubel episode from a couple um, weeks ago. Uh, no, I mean, Medicaid does the, the vast majority of, of long-term elder care in yes. the United States. And there's a fair amount of discretion built into that program, yes. right?
3: And we've accomplished what you just said, Matt, mm-hmm. in home care. So for mm-hmm. home and community-based care that is Medicaid recipient, mm-hmm. Uh, we've um, collectivized the home care work and created a contract with governors, mm-hmm. either through executive orders or then through state legislators mm-hmm. putting it into law. And those workers in Washington state now are on a path to $20 an hour mm-hmm. because they receive education and training and are the eyes and ears of the healthcare system in the home and keep people out of the hospital and forcing those rates up. But wasn't
2: wasn't there a Supreme Court Case about this?
3: Yes. Well, we the Supreme Court just um, forced uh, these workers into a situation where, uh, when everybody was required to pay dues, it's mm-hmm. now voluntary, and okay. we've we've maintained membership. But you're right; there was a another sort of attack on worker organization, even mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. sector. Right. Um but. When you talk about how to innovate, like Mm -hmm. imagine the next president of the United States saying to every hospital that employs 6 million Mm -hmm. workers, hey, if you are going to take a Medicare and Medicaid dollars Mm -hmm. for reimbursement in your hospital – um, you have to be willing to allow your workers to join together in a union and bargain. Uh, mm-hmm. 25% of the hospital sector is now for profit. Mm-hmm. And so when you hear the debate about how many of our taxpayer dollars that are supposed to be making healthcare more affordable are actually going into uh, shareholders' pockets, mm-hmm. we have to examine um, the trillion dollars we spend as a nation on – uh, healthcare and understand that we are impoverishing one of the fastest growing sectors in our economy.
2: So the, the the obvious sort of, I think, counterpoint when you think about healthcare is, you know, Walmart is owned by uh, whoever, uh, the, 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 the Walton family, they're they're very, very rich. Uh, Amazon's owned by Jeff Bezos. Uh, McDonald's doesn't have a singular person like that, but this is like a big, rich company. Uh, but these healthcare costs a lot of them, like they are coming out of our tax dollars. And I think people are going to be concerned. Look, I mean, if you uh, raising the raising the standard, like it it sounds nice, but like that's just going to mean now there's not enough money to go around.
3: Yeah. Well, I think we need to look at the multimillion dollar salaries of the hospital CEOs that are inching into the same stratosphere as fast food and Amazon. Mm -hmm. And the share dividends that are happening and the drug and insurance uh, profits that are being made in our system. And uh, I think any American, if they saw the books, would support uh, people who work for a living being able to lead a decent life over lining the pockets of insurance, pharmaceutical and hospital executives.
2: And so, I mean, ultimately, this is about, I mean, we've talked, there's been a ton of discussion in the media about inequality over the past 10 years. And this is ultimately about that i think in a really fundamental way Amen. right Com- compressing <laughs> yes, the the distribution of economic resources throughout the country um and it's not it's not not the government right like in countries that have had strong union movements that's because policy has supported that uh, but it's not done through the government, no. right? It, it's done through sort of worker representatives, and it's a it's an alternative to thinking of everything as being sort of designed, uh, like in some basement here in in Washington,
3: right? Exactly that workers um, get into the streets and demand it and make the change happen. Like auto jobs in the '30s were poverty jobs.
2: Mm-hmm. It was
3: the union that created the that part of the middle class. And we want to create a middle class that includes everybody this time Mm -hmm. Uh, because so many workers were written out. Mm -hmm. um, And because the new economy is innovating new forms of work, Mm -hmm. uh, we have to have a uh, system that allows the gig workers Mm -hmm. uh, to get to a bargaining table with Uber and Lyft in the transport sector and in the delivery sector with Postmates and DoorDash and all the rest.
2: All right. Uh, well, I, I will let you go soon, but I, but I like to close out asking people uh, what 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 should I have asked you about here? What what do we miss?
3: I, I think just exploring this last concept, Matt, mm-hmm. that you talked about, which is that the power of the union is the power to address the grossest racial and economic inequality of my lifetime, and that the revitalization of thinking about uh, being able to bargain by geography, innovating in cities and states every tax dollar creating good union jobs, and every progressive policy having at its center the ability for people to work one job and lead a decent life is a set of core demands that we're expecting every presidential candidate to answer and every elected official.
2: Okay, fantastic. Uh, Thank you very much, Mary Kay Henry, SEIU. Uh, Thanks, as always, uh, to, to our sponsors, our listeners, and to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back...